Chapter Fourteen of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Clett, Houston, Texas, April two thousand eight. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself, by Harriet Jacobs, written under the pseudonym Linda Brent. Chapter Fourteen. Another link to life. I had not returned to my master's house since the birth of my child. The old man raved to have me thus removed from his immediate power, but his wife vowed, by all that was good and great, she would kill me if I came back, and he did not doubt her word. Sometimes he would stay away for a season. Then he would come and renew the old threadbare discourse about his forbearance and my ingratitude. He laboured most unnecessarily to convince me that I had lowered myself. The venomous old reprobate had no need of descanting on that theme. I felt humiliated enough. My unconscious babe was the ever-present witness of my shame. I listened with silent contempt when he talked about my having forfeited his good opinion. But I shed bitter tears that I was no longer worthy of being respected by the good and pure. Alas! Slavery still held me in its poisonous grasp. There was no chance for me to be respectable. There was no prospect of being able to lead a better life. Sometimes when my master found that I still refused to accept what he called his kind offers, he would threaten to sell my child. "'Perhaps that will humble you,' said he. "'Humble me! Was I not already in the dust? But his threat lacerated my heart. I knew the law gave him power to fulfil it. For slaveholders have been cunning enough to enact that the child shall follow the condition of the mother, not of the father, thus taking care that licentiousness shall not interfere with avarice. This reflection made me clasp my innocent babe all the more firmly to my heart. Horrid visions passed through my mind when I thought of his liability to fall into the slave trader's hands. I wept over him and said, O oh, my child, Perhaps they will leave you in some cold cabin to die, and then throw you into a hole, as if you were a dog." When Dr. Flint learned that I was again to be a mother, he was exasperated beyond measure. He rushed from the house, and returned with a pair of shears. I had a fine head of hair, and he often railed about my pride of arranging it nicely. He cut every hair close to my head, storming and swearing all the time. I replied to some of his abuse, and he struck me. Some months before he had pitched me downstairs in a fit of passion, and the injury I received was so serious that I was unable to turn myself in bed for many days. He then said, "'Linda, I swear by God I will never raise my hand against you again.' But I knew that he would forget his promise. After he discovered my situation, he was like a restless spirit from the pit. He came every day, and I was subjected to such insults as no pen can describe. I would not describe them if I could. They were too low, too revolting. I tried to keep them from my grandmother's knowledge as much as I could. I knew she had enough to sadden her life without having my troubles to bear. When she saw the doctor treat me with violence, and heard him utter oaths terrible enough to palsy a man's tongue, she could not always hold her peace. It was natural and mother-like that she should try to defend me, but it only made matters worse. When they told me my newborn babe was a girl, my heart was heavier than it had ever been before. Slavery is terrible for men, but it is far more terrible for women. 
superadded to the burden common to all, they have wrongs and sufferings and mortifications peculiarly their own. Dr. Flint had sworn that he would make me suffer, to my last day, for this new crime against him, as he called it. And as long as he had me in his power, he kept his word. On the fourth day after the birth of my babe, he entered my room suddenly, and commanded me to rise and bring my baby to him. The nurse who took care of me had gone out of the room to prepare some nourishment, and I was alone. There was no alternative. I rose, took up my babe, and crossed the room to where he sat. "'Now stand there!' said he, till I tell you to go back. My child bore a strong resemblance to her father, and to the deceased Mrs. Sands, her grandmother. He noticed this, and while I stood before him, trembling with weakness, he heaped upon me and my little one every vile epithet he could think of. Even the grandmother in her grave did not escape his curses. In the midst of his vituperations I fainted at his feet. This recalled him to his senses. He took the baby from my arms, laid it on the bed, dashed cold water in my face, took me up, and shook me violently to restore my consciousness before any one entered the room. Just then my grandmother came in, and he hurried out of the house. I suffered in consequence of this treatment, but I begged my friends to let me die rather than send for the doctor. There was nothing I dreaded so much as his presence. My life was spared, and I was glad for the sake of my little ones. Had it not been for these ties to life, I should have been glad to be released by death, though I had lived only nineteen years. Always it gave me a pang that my children had no lawful claim to a name. Their father offered his, but if I had wished to accept the offer, I dared not while my master lived. Moreover, I knew it would not be accepted at their baptism. A Christian name they were at least entitled to, and we resolved to call my boy for our dear good Benjamin, who had gone far away from us. My grandmother belonged to the church, and she was very desirous of having the children christened. I knew Dr. Flint would forbid it, and I did not venture to attempt it. But chance favoured me. He was called to visit a patient out of town, and was obliged to be absent during Sunday. "'Now is the time,' said my grandmother. "'We will take the children to church, and have them christened.' When I entered the church, recollections of my mother came over me, and I felt subdued in spirit. There she had presented me for baptism, without any reason to feel ashamed. She had been married, and had such legal rights as slavery allows to a slave. The vows had at least been sacred to her, and she had never violated them. I was glad she was not alive to know under what different circumstances her grandchildren were presented for baptism. Why had my lot been so different from my mother's? Her master had died when she was a child, and she remained with her mistress till she married. She was never in the power of any master, and thus she escaped one class of the evils that generally fall upon slaves. When my baby was about to be christened, the former mistress of my father stepped up to me, and proposed to give it her Christian name. To this I added the surname of my father, who had himself no legal right to it, for my grandfather on the paternal side was a white gentleman. What tangled skeins are the genealogies of slavery! I loved my father but it mortified me to be obliged to bestow his name on my children. When we left the church, my father's old mistress invited me to go home with her. She clasped a gold chain round my baby's neck. I thanked her for this kindness, but I did not like the emblem. I wanted no chain to be fastened on my daughter, not even if its links were of gold. How earnestly I prayed that she might never feel the weight of slavery's chain, whose iron entereth into the soul. 
End of chapter 14